We have two sermon passages this morning. The first in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24 to 28, and the second in Luke chapter 22, verse 19 through 20. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the Lord speaks through the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Israel in exile and says in verse 24, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And then going forward to Luke chapter 22, in Luke chapter 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus speaks and says in verses 19 through 20, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Thank you, Spencer. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Stephen Carlson. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer, and I'm pinch hitting for Jamie this morning. And you might be able to tell I've been uh, fighting an uncommon cold for about a week and a half. And so bear with me. I know I sound rather nasal. Um, and I'll, I hope my voice makes it through the sermon. Um, Jamie mentioned that we have been talking about the concept of covenant quite a bit because of our study in the book of Hebrews that began way back in April. And so you might call this particular sermon uh, kind of a PS to our study in Hebrews that ended last week, a postscript, because we're going to expand on the concept of covenant and talk about uh, all the biblical covenants briefly and how they lead us toward a greater understanding of God's plan of redemption in the eternal covenant. Uh, the passage that was read earlier, our call to worship, uh, quoted the passage from uh, Hebrews 13 that uh, Austin preached on last week. And there it refers to the eternal covenant. And earlier in the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 8, he talked about the new covenant. And as we saw in the passage that Spencer just read for us, it's called a uh, covenant of peace as well and an everlasting covenant. I'm not sure why English versions do this, but in the Old Testament, most of them will put everlasting, and in the New Testament, they'll put eternal. They mean the same thing. It's a covenant that will never end. It will last forever once it is put into effect. And we'll be looking at the uh, six covenants in the Bible uh, as we get into this study that is going to lead us toward uh, the eternal covenant once again. And the covenant concept is one that I think... uh, it's really important to help us grasp to understand the scriptures. And so I'd like to make a few preliminary comments about covenant before we get into it. First of all, the word covenant refers to a binding agreement between two parties. It can be two people. It can be a people in a 
one person and a group of people. It can be two nations. Uh, specifically, in Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 14, it refers to the covenant of marriage. And so, uh, the covenant that we're going to be talking about, though, the covenants we're going to be talking about, are all covenants that were instigated by God. Thank you. I'm a <laughs> Ooh, that was a long way down there. <laughs> and so the, uh, the covenants we're going to be talking about are a binding agreements, binding uh, covenant on the parties that, are, that come into the covenant relationship. The word covenant, then, is a term of relationship. It establishes the parameters of a relationship. Covenants are also normally accompanied by sign or signs that involve sacred time, sacred space, sacred objects, or sacred actions. And we'll be looking at the signs of these covenants as well. In Scripture, God is always the instigator of the covenant. God is the one who reveals himself to a person or a group of people and sets the parameters, the rules, so to speak, of how that covenant is going to function. Number four, the idea of a deity entering through a covenant is unique to the Bible. In the ancient world, everyone outside of Israel and the church believed in a multiplicity of gods, gods and goddesses that ruled human affairs. But not once is there a reference in all of ancient literature to a deity entering into a covenant relationship with human beings. And so it's an amazing thing to think about the true God, the infinite God, condescending to enter into a covenant relationship with us sinful human beings. Also, there are different terms used for the same covenant that we're going to be looking at. In fact, if you'll take a look at the Scripture passage that Spencer just read for us from Ezekiel again, uh, there are a few things I want to point out before we get started. Notice that God says, My servant David shall be king over them. They shall have one shepherd. David was a shepherd before he became king of Israel. And so the idea of king and shepherd is being combined. Who else do we know combined the idea of king and shepherd? Jesus did. He calls himself the true shepherd in John chapter 10. And the idea of Jesus as king is used throughout the New Testament. And it needs to be pointed out, as Spencer also told us, this was written during the time of the exile. David had been dead for four centuries when this was written. And so who is he talking about? He's talking about the true son of David who is going to accomplish this, the one who's going to be king overall forever, the one who's going to be the shepherd of God's people. Notice also there in verse 25, it says, And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. David wasn't. His kingdom lasted for 40 years, and then he died. Nobody's heard from him since. But there is a son of David who is going to reign forever. Notice that the kingdom is going to be based on a covenant. 
It's called a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant. And in the New Testament and in Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews 8, it's referred to as the new covenant. Notice also, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> there at the end of the passage, my dwelling place shall be with him. The idea of God dwelling among his people is a very important one throughout the Bible. We'll be touching on that as well. The sanctuary in the, in the temple and the, in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, this is the place where God dwelled. My sanctuary will be in their midst forever. And as we look at these covenants, we'll see how this was accomplished. Okay, so the first covenant we want to look at is the covenant God made with Adam, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. God's covenant with Adam. Genesis 1 to 3, the covenant was established in chapters 1 and 2, and the covenant was broken in chapter 3. And the reason I have Hosea 6, 7 there is because the narrative in Genesis does not specifically use the word covenant, but Hosea indicates that it was a covenant. What did God tell them? He created Adam and Eve on the sixth day in his own image and likeness. He placed them in a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin in the world. And they were created in a status of conditional immortality. And by that I mean they were immortal. They were not susceptible to death. They would never die as long as they kept the one condition not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was another tree there, the tree of life. Those are the two signs of the covenant God made with Adam. Covenant signs are the two trees. They had the right to eat of the tree of life as long as they obeyed God's one command. That was the one condition. Imagine being living in a world where there was only one way to sin. And that was it. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As long as you obey that, God says, you have the right to the tree of life. Shortly after they were created, though, they disobeyed. They ate of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were open, they saw evil for what it was for the first time, and they brought sin and death not only upon themselves, but upon all their posterity. And that's all of us except Jesus himself, of course. And so, because they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they no longer had a right to the tree of life. And God banished them from the Garden of Eden. Think of the, think of the consequences of that one sin. One sin brought sin and death upon every person who is the offspring of Adam and Eve. And that's all of us. And there was absolutely nothing Adam and Eve could do to reverse it. But God promised right there in his judgment of them, Genesis 3.15, that he would send the seed of the woman to undo, to reverse the wickedness of the, what Satan did in tricking them into sin. And I, I want to point out here that even in the Garden of Eden, their relationship to God was based on faith. Were they going to believe God? Were they going to believe that what he had said to them was what was right for them, or would they listen to the voice of the serpent? 
Eve no longer believed God was trustworthy. She believed the snake, and she ate. And God thought, excuse me, Adam thought that what God said was, was right, but he didn't care. He decided to do what his wife did. What could be more diametrically opposed to a faith-based relationship to God than to tell God, you're a liar, like Lee, he did, or to tell God, you don't matter, you're irrelevant, like Adam did. And they plunged into sin and death. And it didn't take long for us to discover, as we read the narrative, how devastating the consequences of this act of sin was. And the very next generation, Cain killed his brother. And the wickedness grew so great over the next few centuries that by the time of Noah, only eight people were left who worshipped the one true God. And God says, okay, I'm just going to start over. And God made a covenant with Noah, and that's the second covenant. God's covenant with Noah, Genesis 9, 8 through 17. This covenant is made after the flood narrative. But the flood came because God saw that man was so evil and he wiped all humanity off the face of the earth except for eight people on the ark. And there was a time where the spot where you're sitting right now was covered in water all the way to the highest mountain in the world. And only the people on that ark safely made it through the flood. And after the flood, God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And by that, he means a covenant with all humanity from Noah to the end of time. That he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. Now, that should be a comforting thing for us whenever it starts raining. Because if he hadn't said that, this could be another one. Because God says, after the flood, I know that the thoughts of man's heart are only evil continually. Man has not changed, but God in his grace determined not to judge man as harshly as they deserve. And you're probably all familiar with the sign of the Noah covenant, the rainbow. You have rain, sometimes you see a rainbow. That should mean something to you as a believer. It, as a reminder of God's faithfulness and not destroying wicked humanity as we deserve. Over the next few centuries, <clears throat> about five centuries later, God was now prepared to begin to unveil what, how he was going to accomplish the promise of Genesis 3.15. How was the seed of the woman going to come into the world? He was going to come into the world through a man named Abraham. And this is the Abraham covenant there in Genesis 15. There's actually three really significant chapters related to this in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham. He was in Ur of the Chaldees. And if you, you like geography, that means Iraq. He was in Iraq. He was a long way from the land of promise. And he was an idolater. God revealed himself as the one true God and said, I want you to get up and leave, and I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you. And then he made this promise. I'm going to bless those who bless you. 
I'm going to curse those who curse you, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he repeats this promise to Isaac and to Jacob. How did God bless the entire world through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, there's only one answer. We know what the answer is. Jesus Christ. God blessed the world through the redemption that he brought about in Christ Jesus, and he used Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants to bring this Messiah, this Redeemer, this Deliverer into the world. The sign of the covenant is circumcision. They're in Genesis 17. This is the way that the generations would be continued. And it also involves, circumcision, of course, involves the shedding of blood, which is a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. The shedding of blood there with the animals being killed. In Genesis 15, God ratifies in a solemn ceremony the promises he had made to Abraham in Genesis 15. He tells Abraham, take some animals, kill them, cut them in half, separate the pieces, and then he puts Abraham to sleep and his glory passes through the pieces. The significance of that is that when a person did that, he was saying, if I break this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. It says God cannot die. It is absolutely certain that God's covenant with Abraham will be fulfilled. He waited a long time to make it happen, but he did it in the person of Christ. And so, it's not surprising that uh, Father Abraham, when we get to the New Testament, is mentioned 73 times, many of them in direct relationship to Jesus. Particularly, how does the New Testament begin? Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Every Jew knew that when the Messiah came, he had to be a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. And we'll be talking about David again here in a moment. Meanwhile, as the nation began to grow, they ended up in slavery in Egypt. And God, by his powerful hand, delivered them from slavery in Egypt and led them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with the nation that we were often referred to as the law of Moses. And so the next covenant is God's covenant with Israel. Now, I've got these passages listed here. This covers a lot of territory. Uh, it's often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, the Law Code, the Sinai Covenant. All of those refer to the same thing. And it begins with the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20, goes through the rest of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, most of Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is basically a repetition of the law given a generation later, 40 years later, after the wilderness wandering. Um, <clears throat> the sign of the covenant is the Sabbath. In, Genesis, in uh, excuse me, Exodus 31, 12 through 17, the Sabbath day is specifically mentioned as 
the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And it's incorporated into the Ten Commandments, of course. So this is the one day of the week that they were to rest, reenacting God's day of rest in creation week, reminding them of their relationship to him and of the covenant he made with them in Mount Sinai. And there's some very important points to be made about this covenant. First of all, <clears throat> this was a covenant that pertained only to this life. The, new, the, the covenant God made with Israel and Mount Sinai did not address the afterlife. It did not address salvation. It did not address eternal life. It did not address the eternal covenant. It was what God expected of his people to do, how they were to act in their relationship to him when they were in the land of promise. And the tragedy of this is that there was such a great emphasis on the law of Moses that they did something with it that God never intended. They started using it as a means of attaining righteousness or means of attaining salvation. If you keep this covenant, if you keep the commandments, you will be saved and go to heaven and be in the future kingdom forever. God never intended the law of Moses to be used in this way. It is related to their responsibility in this life, in their covenant relationship to God from the time of Moses to the coming of the Messiah. It was in force only 15 centuries. Well, I say only, I know that was a long time. But it was only in force during that time frame. And the New Testament makes it very clear that the law was never a means of attaining salvation, particularly Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Galatians. We know that no man is declared righteous by the works of the law, Paul says. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Over and over again, the New Testament emphasizes this truth. Personal goodness, personal piety, good works, whatever you want to call them, they contribute nothing to your salvation. Because your salvation is based on the work of Christ on the cross and bringing eternal redemption and bringing you into a relationship with God in the eternal covenant. And so, this leads us then to the next covenant where God takes another major step forward in explaining his plan of redemption. He mentioned it in Genesis 3.15, he explained that it would come only through the family of Abraham. That the family of Abraham, someone from the family of Abraham will bring great blessing to all the world. And now it becomes even more specific on who the family of Abraham is going, who among the family of Abraham is going to bring the Messiah to the world. And that's the God's covenant with David. That's mentioned there in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. And 23.5 specifically refers to it as a covenant, as does Psalm 89. <clears throat> when God revealed this to David, he was planning to build the temple 
it was, it, he was making these plans to build a temple. From the time of Moses to the time of David, which is about uh, 400 years, they had been enjoying the presence of God through the tabernacle that they built in Mount Sinai according to the instructions God gave them there. And at the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, the book ends with the nation observing the glory of God coming down and dwelling in the Holy of Holies. The very presence of God, the manifested presence of God on earth, right there among this tiny group of former slaves at Mount Sinai. They were his people. But the tabernacle moved around. Everywhere the Israel went, the tabernacle went with them. It was the job of the Levites and the priests to tear it down and then to build it back up again. And then eventually, by the time of David, he had established Jerusalem as their capital, and the tabernacle was staying there. And he said, we don't need to have this temporary moving sanctuary anymore. I want to build a temple for the Lord. And God says, I'm not going to let you build it. I'm going to let your son build it. But I am going to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And here's the essential element of God's covenant with David. Someone descending from you is going to reign forever. Your son is going to sit on the throne forever. Now, as I mentioned, by the time Ezekiel said this in uh, the passage that Spitzer read for us, David had been dead a long time. And David's reign was only 40 years, and he died, and nobody's heard from him since. So who is this talking about? In what way did David establish a monarchy, a kingdom, that would last forever? In fact, the line of David only lasted until the captivity. The sign of the God's covenant with David is the temple that he built. And they lasted about the same amount of time. After the temple was built, it only lasted 400 years. At the time of the exile, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He takes all the people of Judah captive. He destroys the temple, and the monarchy comes to an end. All the kings in the line of David are either dead or in exile and died in exile. And the monarchy stopped and was never started again. And just before the captivity began, Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God departing from the temple. Just as the glory of God in Exodus 40 had come down to dwell in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, it had done the same thing after Solomon had built the temple. They saw the glory of God come down and indwell it. But now the glory has left. And even after they rebuilt the temple, after the captivity, the scriptures never say the glory of God came back. There's something more. Would it surprise you to know that the name David 
occurs 59 times in the New Testament. And they're all related to Jesus, who he is, what he did as the son of David. In fact, son of David is a messianic title. That's what they started calling the coming one, the son of David. Correctly, they understood this. In John chapter 1, Nathaniel refers to Jesus as Messiah and the king of Israel. And this, this concept of glory is attached to Jesus himself. John chapter 1, in the beginning was word, the word was with God, the word was God. Jesus, the son of God, created the universe. And then in verse 14, we have John's account of the Christmas story. It's in four words. The word became flesh. The eternal God, the creator, became a human being. 100% God and 100% human. And John goes on to say, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that God manifested in the Old Testament, whether at the burning bush for Moses or in the tabernacle or in the temple, does not even compare to the glory in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who became a human being and manifested God's glory. And in fact, in chapter 2, it's connected to the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. This is the first cleansing of the temple, at the beginning of his ministry. There's another one that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention at the end of his ministry, just before he's crucified. But Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, and the Pharisees come up to him and say, who do you think you are? What gives you, who gives you the authority to do this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they say, it's taken decades to build this temple. What are you talking about? And John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was going to do a much greater work than any building. He was going to come back. He was going to defeat death. He was going to come back from the dead. He was going to pay the price of sin. And that was going to provide redemption and solve the problem of Adam and Eve's breaking of the covenant in Genesis 3. And so that leads us to the sixth covenant. God's eternal covenant. The passage there is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, refers to it as the new covenant, quoted in Hebrews 8. And as we saw, Ezekiel refers to it as the everlasting covenant, eternal covenant in Hebrews 13. And then there, Jesus refers to the new covenant as the new covenant in my blood. That's the way the new covenant would come into effect when Jesus died. 
It would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, and it would fulfill the Davidic covenant. And there's two signs. This probably doesn't surprise you, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, you, if you've been around Redeemer for some time, you, you know we take baptism and the Lord's Supper pretty seriously. And this is why. These are the signs of the covenant. They are important because they say something about what we believe about Jesus. And notice that like circumcision, which occurred only once, baptism occurs only once. But we have also a sign like the Sabbath or the rainbow that is repeated, and that's the Lord's Supper. Here at Redeemer, we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning together. What do they mean? A believer has the responsibility to visibly, the, the, openly and visibly confess their faith in Jesus. And that's what baptism is. It's a profession of faith in Jesus. You openly declare that you are identifying yourself with him. Paul calls, says that in baptism, we are baptized into his death, into Christ Jesus. So that I, I'm identifying myself with Jesus and I'm identifying myself with his death. And Paul completes the picture because baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. Buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. Is that what you believe about Jesus? If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to be baptized. But as I said, we also take the Lord's Supper every week. What is the Lord's Supper? It's something we do together. In the passage that Spencer read from Luke, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember is a key word in covenant language. It means when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember our covenant relationship with him because Jesus spelled out what the elements refer to. The bread is his broken body. The cup is his shed blood. And we celebrate that together as God's covenant people because that is what we believe about him. I titled this sermon, The Eternal Covenant in You, for a reason. This covenant is about you. Are you in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus? That's the only relationship with God that there is. That's the only way to have a covenant relationship with him is through the blood of Jesus. Everyone is either in a covenant relationship with God or they're not. Scriptures are also very clear that those who reject this covenant, there's an eternity waiting for them too but it's not going to be the joys of eternal salvation in the kingdom in the future with him. 
It's going to be in the lake of fire. Revelation 13, 8. Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. This was God's plan from all eternity. God did not start trying to come up with a way to fix things at the last minute. This was God's plan. This was in the mind of God, his plan in eternity past to bring redemption to fallen humanity through the blood of Jesus and to bring glory through, to himself through the work of his son and our coming to worship him by faith in Jesus. And also right there at the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Almost at the end of the book, Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. He's the one who fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He's the one who's going to sit on the throne. He's the one, as he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 24 and 25, and as Paul says, Jesus is going to come in his kingdom and judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge everyone. And the question is going to be, are you in a covered relationship with me? If you're not, you cannot enter my kingdom. I'd like to end with a little poem I heard many years ago. I think I've shared it with some of you before, but it seemed to bear repeating. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. And one day you will be asking, what will he do with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love to us. We thank you for the way you have established your covenant through the blood of Jesus. We thank you for your grace of providing redemption from sin by faith in him. Father, we ask now that if there is someone here who does not know you, that you would open their heart to receive the truth and to be saved today. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have as your people to come together and celebrate and remember what Jesus has done for us. For it's in his name I pray.